0: You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 41. Let me read um, our text. It is fairly long today, so I'm going to give you uh, somewhat of a, 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 an abbreviated form. I'm only going to go to verse... 14, and, uh, and then I'll share a little bit um, through the, the, the teaching today, what's going on in our text. So if you have been reading Genesis or have read Genesis or have been with us, you kind of know what's going on, but let me, let me just uh, start reading here at verse 1 in chapter 41. After two whole years, the Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came out of the Nile seven cows attractive and plump. And they fed on the green grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin. That word ugly and thin in Hebrew uh, takes this uh, connotation of evil. These evil sort of evil cows, I guess. Um, not holy cows, but evil cows. Came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. This is what he's saying. And the ugly, the evil, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And... Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of corn, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, uh, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears, and Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he uh, uh, sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. Hold on to that because that's going to come into play a little later. I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief uh, baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, and he and I, each having the dream with his own interpretation, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted it to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he, had, they had shaved, him, they, when he shaved himself, he changed his clothes and came in before Pharaoh. Let's pray and ask God for insight and help today. God, I thank you for your sufficient, powerful word. And as we gather this morning, we place ourselves under its authority. I do this willingly, Lord. I pray that hearts in here would do the same. Though we may have questions still, may have doubts still, we want to say that we trust you, God. I pray that for those in here that do not have faith, that need faith this morning, that you'd give them faith. As we discuss this topic of suffering, as we've been looking at the life of Joseph, I pray that you'd give us wisdom. I, I, pray, I, I have this sense that um, in this church this week, you want to speak profoundly to this church and even prophetically to this church on issues of suffering. So help us, God. I need your help. As Joseph would stand before Pharaoh and he would ask him, I heard you interpret dreams, and Joseph said, it is not in me. I say the same thing, God, it's not in me. Of your way today. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began a little short series on suffering through the life of Joseph, looking at the life of Joseph. And it's been my conviction for some time now that I want to teach this church how to suffer. I know it sounds strange, it sounds weird, but I know that we're being, we've been a young church, and even our demographic, though it was nothing that we intended to do, our demographic is fairly young, and I want to show us, I want, to, I want us to go through the theology of suffering. How can we suffer well? I don't know if we ever will suffer in the West. Like our Christian brothers and sisters suffer all over the world. I don't know if we'll ever get that way. But I know that we personally go through suffering. I know that we personally go through pain. And I've seen people walk away from God in their suffering. And so it's been my conviction. It's been my, every single time I come across a passage that has to do with suffering, I pull out like the same four books one written by N.T. Wright, D.A. Carson, C.S. Lewis, like these four books, and I, and I ripped through them once again going, okay, God, teach our church how to suffer. How do we suffer well? How do we go through pain in our life, personal pain in our life, pain in our family, or maybe even when it comes to it, persecution for following Jesus in San Francisco or in the West? If it ever came to that, help us, God, to suffer well. I've not done the best job at suffering. I, I'm not, I, I don't like pain that much. I have a low tolerance for pain, very low, like very low. And so I don't like to suffer. I know you guys might not like to suffer either. Some of you guys have a higher tolerance for pain, but none of us loves to suffer. But how do we suffer well? How do we go through suffering? Whether it's just that, that, that one day that you have at the office or at work or in the city where you just hate it here. Or one day you have in marriage, and those days will come where you're like, it's so hard to be married. Or those days that come being single, it's so hard to be single. Whatever. How do you go through that with God? And so last week we looked at this subject. We looked at the pain in the plan, and we had two controlling thoughts from last week. And the first one was, the presence of God does not mean the absence of pain. I think that's very simple. I hope that you remember that. I told you to possibly get that tattooed. I don't know. Like, that needs to be something... (laughs) That you that you need to lock in your heart the presence of God because God's near. As soon as pain comes in your life, we're like God's left me. He was great when last weekend was sunny. It's foggy now, and I'm depressed, and God's not with me. Or s- something happened in your life where there's this tremendous amount of suffering or injustice done to you. God is gone, and it's not true. Joseph gone went through plenty of suffering. His brothers sold him out into slavery. He's he, when when. Potiphar's cougar wife, tried to jump on him, and he like ran away naked, and he goes to prison because of it. It kept on saying over and over and over in the narrative, the Lord, Yahweh, was with Joseph. Yahweh was with. God was with him. He was with them. So the, the presence of God does not mean the absence of pain. But the other one, the other controlling thought of last week, and it's the question that we asked, and I, I think this question is a, a one that I, I hope that you would wrestle with. You may not be there yet, but I hope we we can wrestle with them. Is can God use your life to bring blessing to the world? Even if the plan included pain. Can God bring through your life blessing to the world? Even if that plan that he has for your life included pain. Could we say that? Could we say that today? Could we say that as people who follow God? Like God, use my life even if that means pain. That was the teaching last week. You should listen to it if you were not here. But today I want to continue this discussion of pain and suffering by asking you the question, how do you prepare for it? How do you prepare for pain? Pain and suffering, and I know that this sermon will be a little bit quiet in here, last service it was, last week it was, especially contemplating this idea and this thought of pain. But how do you prepare for it before you ever get into it? Pain and suffering are an inevitable part of the human experience, and pain is a promised part of the Christian experience. Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. It is a promise. We cannot escape suffering. If you doubt this, if you think you can escape suffering, maybe as an optimistic daydreamer, or... You could be, and I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun of you or whatever, but I, there is a very specific and rare form of Christian Christianity that says that you can escape all pain. Let me just say this, to use D.A. Carson's list in his book on suffering. If you think you can escape pain, you're number one ignorant of what many Christians around the world have to face daily. You are an American Western Christian, if you think that all our brother Christian brothers and sisters suffering around the world for the cause of Christ, you are ignorant of what they go through every day. Or ignorant of just what the world goes through in general. Or number two, you're not old enough yet. If you live long enough, you will suffer. Or three, you're kidding yourself. Or my favorite four, some combination of the above. If pain and suffering are inevitable, even promised how do we prepare for it? How do we prepare for pain if we even can? Or to use our narrative allegorically, is there something we can do in times of abundance that can prepare us and sustain us in times of famine? Because the, 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 the dream that Pharaoh had was there were these Good, plump, juicy cows, nice, holy cows, and then there were these evil cows. And these skinny, evil cows ate the big, fat, plump cows, and they still looked skinny. Completely. Like, and there was no remembrance of those, old, those plump cows. It was just skinny. And then the same thing with the, with the grain. Same thing. And Joseph comes out, and he says, okay, I have the interpretation. And this is the interpretation. The interpretation is that those seven cows are seven years. You have seven years of abundance. You have seven years of fruitfulness. You have seven years of plenty. But then that's followed by seven years of famine. Wicked. Eating up the, the, the abundance you so much that you forgot about them completely. And then Joseph says, and this is not part of the dream, this is just Joseph's wisdom. I advise that you do this, that you put somebody in charge of all, of the land of Egypt and store up a fifth of all the grain and keep storing it and keep storing it and keep storing it so that when famine comes, you are ready for it. And Pharaoh's just blown away, going, not only did you interpret my dream, you gave the best counsel ever. You know what? You're that man. I have not met anyone who the Spirit of God lives in. He's actually the only person in all of Genesis that says the Holy Spirit's in him. And then he renames him and he makes him head of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. So you guys know the scene. I'm sure you're familiar with this story, I would imagine. Is there something, now getting back to this idea, uh, looking at like that allegorically, is there something that we can do in times of abundance that prepares in times of famine? But I, I believe, once again, looking at the life of Joseph may provide answers to this question. So this is how I want to go through our text today. What we need to know of preparing for pain, what we need to know profoundly, meaningfully in our own life. What we need to know, what to experience personally. I think this is a very important part. And then what to do practically. I never normally end on what to do, but I, I, hope, it, I hope it fits today. First, what to know profoundly. What do we need to know? Here's the thing. I want you to write this down. These are the two. If, um, if suffering had a one-two punch, okay, like meet this person and meet this person, okay? If suffering had a one-two punch, here would they, here, here's what it would be. God is sovereign, God is good. That's what I want you, if you guys write in journals or diaries, you guys call them diaries, I don't know, that's weird, but whatever. Whatever you write notes down, or if you take notes in your phone, or in your Bible, or whatever, please lock this in. Write this down right now. God is sovereign, and God is good. God is sovereign, God is good. God is sovereign, and God is good. This, what do you need to know? What do you need to know in your own mind, your own heart, What do you need to know personally before you go through suffering or in the midst of suffering? You need to know this, guys, that God is sovereign. He is completely in control of everything. There is not one moment that this universe slips out of his gaze, not one moment that your life is an accident, nothing. But that brings up a lot of questions, though. I know it does. There's a lot of suffering in this world. There's a lot. There's a lot of unanswered questions that you might have about your life or your Family or something. Here's the other one. God is good. First, God is sovereign. See, as a teenager, Joseph had two dreams. That someday he would become a ruler, and his parents, his family, his brothers would bow down to him. So he just kind of flaunted this dream around, told his his, his brothers, Hey, I had this dream last night, it was crazy. You bow down to me. They hated him. These dreams got him in deep trouble. His brothers hated him, wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill the dreams by killing the dreamer. But instead of killing Joseph, they sold him into slavery. And this isn't like how brothers and sisters do, like, I wish you were dead. Like, they really were going to do something about it. And they did. And Joseph ended up a slave in Potiphar's house in Egypt. As a slave, he was far removed from his dreams of rulership. He could hardly descend any lower as a slave. But in, in Potiphar's house, his own wife, Potiphar's wife, accused him of rape. And Joseph tumbled even lower than a slave. He ended up a despised slave prisoner in Egypt. In prison, he met two prisoners who were officers of Pharaoh, the butler and the baker. The butler was kind of like a cupbearer. He would take everything and sip it first before he gives it to the king. It's like, if I die, you're, I'm going to die first. Unless, you know, the death took a long time to set in. But whatever. We, didn't, we don't think about that. Okay, he drinks it. He goes, it's good. And he goes, this his cupbearer, his butler, his personal advisor. And Pharaoh has, has mood swings like a lot of us do. And one day he just got mad and he sent two of his guys to prison, the butler and the, and the chief baker. He sends them to prison. When they're in prison, they meet Joseph. And then these two guys, these but, the butler and baker, have a dream at night. Both have separate dreams. And this is this is what it says in verse uh, of chapter forty. When Joseph came to them, verse six, in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. Okay, remember how we talked about how Joseph is just so almost out of touch. Amazing, like he's in prison, and he notices these two gar- these two new prisoners are, are are bummed out. They're just moping around prison. He's like, "Hey, what's wrong, guys? <laughs> like, maybe I'm in prison. Maybe that's what's wrong." But no, there was something even, even worse than that because they were in prison kind of like, uh, and, and Joseph's like, hey guys, how, how you, what's wrong? You guys look, look what it says there. You guys look, why is your face so downcast today? Like Joseph's so intuitive that he knows that there's something wrong spiritually with these guys. It's like, what's, what's wrong? And, he, and they tell him. They said to him, we've had dreams and there was no one here to interpret them. Here's what you need to know about dreams in the time of Egypt, in this time in Egypt. The interpretation of dreams was a science. There were certain people trained in the science of interpreting dreams. There were men who were learned in the technique of interpreting dreams and there was a considerable amount of literature written on the subject. And so when everyone had some kind of dream, they'd go to this person who was studied and versed in dreams and go, tell me your dream. And they would dissect it and say, this is what this means, this is what this means. So the butler and the baker had dreams in prison, but none of these people or resources were available to them. They couldn't call in someone from the outside to interpret their dreams. And they are sure that their dreams contain prophecies of their personal destiny. And they're troubled. We have these dreams and we know that it has to do with the future. And know it has to do with our personal destiny. It has to do with everything. And there's no one to interpret these dreams. That's what Joseph says, verse 8. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me. This is what Joseph says. What do we need to know in the the preparation for pain? And not just know mentally, what do we need to know in the biblical sense? What did Joseph know? Joseph knew that God is sovereign. When Joseph said to the butler and the baker, what he said to them here is completely polemic. It's an argument against their idolatrous way of looking at dreams and the future and the world. He is getting to the truth that, there, that all of this, all of life, all of interpretations, all of your personal destiny belongs in the hand of God. All of it does. Your dreams, your future, your path, everything belongs to God. It all belongs to God. It's all God's. He had this perspective as a prisoner. Joseph, In prison, who's done nothing wrong to be there? Nothing wrong to his brothers, nothing wrong to his father's house, nothing wrong to Potiphar or Potiphar's wife. And as far as we can tell in the narrative, nothing, he's done nothing wrong to God. And he has the nerve to say, God is sovereign over all. All my dreams, life, future, personal destiny, all of it. Tell me the dream. God's sovereign. It's God who gives dreams, it's God who answers dreams, it's God who has future give me the dream. So the, the, the butler's, uh, the cupbearer, his dream was, okay, these vine branches, and they had these, uh, they budded, and they had clumps of vines, and I was carrying a cup next to Pharaoh, and I grabbed the, uh, the, uh, the grapes, squeezed them into his cup, and gave it to him. And then Pharaoh, and then uh, Joseph said, okay, your, your dream is like this. Uh, the three branches are three days, and in three days, you're going to be lifted up again, and you're going to hold the cup for Pharaoh. Done. He's like, whoa, that's good news. Okay, but listen, when you go see Pharaoh, tell him that I'm here. Uh, that I'm here. Like, people forgot me. My father saw, man, man, all the stories I've been telling you, tell them that I'm here, that I need to get out of this place. It's like, okay, I'll remember you. It's like, okay, good, remember me. So next, and, the, and then the butler's like, ooh, that's a, or the baker's like, ooh, that's a good interpretation. I had a dream too. Three baskets on my head. They were all full of cakes and breads and good things. And the very top one, there was birds eating out. I had it from Pharaoh, but birds were eating it. It's like, here's your interpretation in three days. You'll be lifted up, but your head's going to be lifted off of you. You're going to die. So, sorry about that. So that was interpretation. It was true. Three days happened exactly like he said. So, the butler's there next to Pharaoh. He's supposed to remember. Remember me. And he didn't. Pharaoh has a dream. And this is where Joseph is remembered. Pharaoh has a dream. And, and, and chapter 41 opens like this. After two whole years... He's in, he interprets these dreams, and then two years later, the butler's like, oh, yeah, my bad. Um, I remember my sin. That's what he says. Okay, hey, I'm sorry, guys. I just, I'm, I just committed a, I, my bad. Okay, you, you, had, you had these dreams. There's someone I met in prison who's, like, really good at this sort of stuff, and I kind of forgot when I got here. You, like, dressed me up, and I was drinking some wine. I kind of forgot. Two years gone by. I remember now. There's a Hebrew in prison Maybe still. Check it out. He can interpret these dreams. He told us everything we needed to know. And Pharaoh brings Joseph, shaves him, brings Joseph in front of him and says this. I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. See, the pharaoh considers that Joseph is some sort of scientific specialist who's trained in the art of interpreting dreams. Maybe a Hebraic form of this, like you studied at a different school than my guys studied. Maybe you have a different some some more insight on this than my guys. So, tell me, tell me, I wanna, I'm going to tell you this dream, and you have it in you. But look at what Joseph, how Joseph corrected Pharaoh. He stood before Pharaoh and said, "It's not in me." It's not in me. The interpretation that you seek, your future is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It's not in me. It's beyond anything I could ever do or be trained for. God is sovereign and will give you the answer you seek. Joseph, at two more years passes by. Joseph has been sold into slavery a slave, a prisoner is now out and it's been 13 years. 13 years of suffering. And he stands before Pharaoh and he says, God is sovereign. It's not in me. First of all, I think we need this sort of charisma in our church. I know there's a a lot of you are, most of you are very well educated and trained in your careers. That's why you live in San Francisco, doing what you do but you and I need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit for wisdom in our jobs and our careers and our callings. There are things that we will face in life and career that we were never trained for, that we never took that class, we never took that elective. They never gave us that in the manual. And we will face it. And as Christians, you and I can face it by praying, Holy Spirit, help me. I can't be trained good enough for this. I need the wisdom that comes from God. Joseph is the only character in Genesis said to have the Holy Spirit. When Pharaoh renames him, this Egyptian name that's super long—I don't even know how to read it. Maybe Tarak knows how to read it or something like that. But like Zaphen—something huge, like this long name. It means this. Pharaoh renamed Joseph this Egyptian name. It means God speaks and God lives. Joseph's like it's not in me. I wasn't trained in. It's from God. He's sovereign. He's the Lord. He's the one. Tell me your dream, and I'll tell you the interpretation. Not just that, but I'll give you wisdom on what to do next. As we prepare our lives for whatever may come, whether it be great pleasure or great pain, the knowledge of who God is and who we're not is very important. The knowledge that God is sovereign That God is sovereign over everything. What did Joseph know before going into suffering? He knew that God was sovereign. He was sovereign over all of it. And here's what I mean that God is sovereign God's power always makes way for his perfections to be expressed. God's power always makes way for his perfections to be expressed. There's always a way with God, he never becomes a victim of circumstance. There is nothing that happens to God who's like, oh, dude, whoa. That was, didn't see that one coming. What do I do now? Never. He's always in control. That's the first thing that we need to know before, when we go through suffering, that God is in control. As you might be familiar with the book of Job, Satan goes to Job at the beginning of the book of Job and says, let's do a little game. Let's do a little cosmic test here. There's a guy named Job Well, actually, God brings him up. But he's like, I'm going to bring suffering in his life, and he'll curse you. And God's like, okay. So it's clear in there that Satan has something to do with it. But when disaster strikes Job, Job says this, God gives, and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's something, and this is what you need to understand. There's this mystery here. There's this... There's this, um, as we talked about last week, this tension between what we do and our free will that God never trumps, but his sovereignty that, that is never determined by our free will, and then even Satan working where God's sovereign over all of it. All of it. We need to understand this. That God is sovereign. God is powerful. Now, this also brings up a lot of questions. If God is so powerful, if God is so sovereign... This is what, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain. This is what C.S. Lewis calls the problem of pain. There's a problem with pain. If God is powerful, he can prevent it. If God is good, he would never let it happen. He doesn't do either. That's a problem. How do you answer this problem? This is what needs to... and. And this is what C.S. Lewis gets to in his book. This is what needs to frame everything. God is good. And not good like you and I think, Like, well, God is good in that my definition of good. Because you have a definition of good, but it's not God's definition of good. Do you understand? Like, what, I, I, I know what's good. God's like, uh, I kind of know what's good. No, no, I do. If, and I know what's, what, what's, what's right. He's like, mm, no, I kind of know what's right. There's a way that you and I would run the universe, but we're not God. He is good. When I was a youth pastor in Bakersfield, um, there was a, uh, a, a high, school, high school leader that got married um, a little bit later in life. He was um, well into his 40s and had uh, a baby. and The youth group just loved this baby. because It was like the youth group's baby and like youth leader, and everybody loved her, and she was so awesome and cute. And, um When she was two years old, my wife and I were in, actually, Napa, just just over here, and we got a phone call that said that 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 morning she had uh, drowned in a pool, and she died. And we just drove back to Bakersfield, and it was horrific. Mourning with our church, asking God questions of why, trying to make sense of it all, trying to understand it, like that sort of mourning being with the church. And then two months later, we were having a Bible study and high school Bible study and the girl that was going into her senior year of of high school just loved Jesus so much. Beautiful. Young woman drives home, gets in a car accident and dies. Two months later. She would have been 25 today. Not today, but right now. And at her memorial, I mean, there was just a, I don't even remember what I said. I actually had to go back and look at the message, the part of the message that I gave for this memorial, I didn't know, I don't remember what I said, but I do remember standing there and just a sea of people, young, tons of people from her school, family, friends, everyone trying to rejoice. You know when, when, when there's a life cut short and you're trying to rejoice over the good and that they're with Jesus, but nobody was pulling it off? Nobody was pulling it off. Everybody was mourning. Everybody was going, Why? Why? As I stood there, like, over, just in front of all these people, and I had, I had notes and something prepared, but the thing that was overwhelming as I stood in front of these people, overwhelming, the only thing that I can say as I started is what Nahum said to a suffering Israel. He said, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. The Lord is Good. And I'm not. I'm not going to try to tie a bow on like how their lives turn out because there's a really great stories attached to that. And that, but I'm not trying to tie a bow on that. What I, I want to just stay in this little pocket of this of like loss and go. The Lord is good in that. Before you know the future, before you know how God works it all out, loud, in that very moment, God is good. He is good in that moment. He is good. This is the foundation of all true theology. This is what holds the justice of God together with the mercy of God. The love of God together with the wrath of God. How do all those things, God is all these things, how does it all hold together? God is good. And not good as you define good. Not good as like, you know, a a life that just, just lived completely in comfort and everything I want I get. That's not the good. It's a different word. This is the foundation. This is what I need you, I need us to fight and wrestle through beyond all our doubts and questions and find this place in our souls and trust in God that God, the Lord is good. He's sovereign. He's in control of everything. We can't sit here and go, well, God didn't mean for this to happen. In some way, God will work this out for good. In some way. So we need faith here. We need tremendous faith because we cannot see the end. We cannot see where this all leads. I heard Tim Keller use great logic on, on, on a point similar to this. He's really good at logic, so I'll just quote him. He said, if you have a God who is great enough and infinite enough that you can be mad at him for not stopping the suffering. I think everyone at one point in their life is mad at God for not stopping suffering. God, you could have done something you didn't, and I'm mad at you. That anger assumes. The anger at God for not stopping, that assumes that he is infinite and great enough and powerful enough to stop it. And that's why you're mad at him. But if you have a God who is infinite and great enough to be mad at for not stopping the suffering, then you have to have at the same time a God who is infinite and great enough to have a perspective on it that you don't have and for reasons that you can't see. If you could be mad at this God for not stopping it, then you have a God powerful enough to stop pain. But you also have a powerful God, enough God to know what he's doing, to have a different perspective on it, to be working out the whole universe to an expected end, to where everyone says, surely the Lord is good. If you could be mad at God great enough, a God great enough to be able to stop it, you have also have a God who's high enough and great enough to be able to see it in ways that you don't. And is working things out in ways you can't even possibly imagine. Joseph had the privilege that we may not have. We may have it, we may not have it. His dreams came true, and he got to see them fulfilled. He stood in front of his brothers when he was second only to Pharaoh, and his brothers came to him and bowed before him, but didn't know it was him, and his dreams came true in that moment. Here are my brothers bowing before me. They went there to ask for grain. And he said to them later on, you meant evil against me by selling me into slavery. But God meant it for good. How can Joseph say that God meant it for good? And how could Joseph believe that in the midst of the suffering, every injustice, every forgotten year in prison, every lonely night knowing that he was there because someone else hated him? That he was there because he said no to temptation. And she lied about it. They meant evil, but God meant good. Why did God mean good? Because the Lord is good. He's good. God is in control, and God is good. But you and I need to experience this personally. These are just abstract concepts. These are concepts, guys, and, and, and concepts have, a, have a, a grossly impossible way of, of, of bringing comfort to us in, in the midst of suffering. But this guy, hey guys, memorize this song, God is good, God is good, all the time, all the time. And then you're like singing the song and you're going through suffering, you're like, God is good. This just abstract. I mean, how do you hold that? How do you hug that? How do you experience that? It's abstract. But Christianity is not a conceptual religion. It's not a moral code. It's not a spiritual guidebook. It's not pithy statements. Christianity is a person. Christianity is a person of Jesus Christ. Not just concepts to be understood, but a person to be experienced. We need to know Jesus personally. We need to know Jesus experientially. We need to know Him in the biblical sense of know. We need to know Him. We need to know the God who is good and the God who is sovereign put on display in the person of Jesus. God showed us His goodness in the midst of suffering when One greater than Joseph chose to go through the suffering to save us. Chose it. Joseph was going through it, but didn't know how the whole thing was going to turn out. Jesus knew it, chose it for us, to bring us in. To be separated from God in a way that you and I will never be separated from God. So that when we go through suffering, we can say the Lord is with us. And the Lord is good. And he's bringing everything about. Everything. Everything will make sense. Hebrews 12:2 says, "Let's look to Jesus. Let's fix our eyes," one translation says. King James or New King James or NIV, one of them. "Fix our eyes on Je- the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. There was a joy that was set before Jesus as he endured the cross. There was a joy that you and I would be with him. There was a joy that you and I, our eyes would be open to the reality of who he was. There is a joy that we can experience the gospel. We can know the gospel. That we can be reconciled to God. Because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God showed us his his sovereignty and that he used the powers of evil that crushed, crushed Jesus to save you. He used the powers of evil that crushed Jesus to save us, to free us. And so Jesus said with full confidence, in this world you will have trouble. But here's the second part of that. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Look at that statement. That statement is so potent. It's so pregnant with meaning and so pregnant with like power. Like yeah, you will have trouble in this world but you know what I did? I overcame the world and because I've overcome the world, I've overcome the outcome of the trouble of the world. Though there is trouble, there's a new outcome now because there's a new Lord now. And though there is trouble in this world, I will bring it to an end. And all the trouble that you suffer, all the stuff that you go through, I am working it I mean it for good. I work it out for good. I work all things together for good because I am good. We need to experience this. And that's what I want to do today in worship. I want to experience this. I want to I want to sing this so deep into our hearts as a church that we believe that God is good. That we can stand before our neighbors and our, and our, and our friends and, our, and people that we work with and go, the Lord is good. Is there suffering in this world? Yes, but God is good. And he's done everything to destroy it by taking it upon himself on the cross, dying in our place. Lastly, what to do practically. This is what, this is what Joseph gets in verse 50. It says, Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. So before all the famine struck, he got got married and had two kids. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second is Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. What do we do practically? Practically. Joseph named his first son Manasseh, which means forget, to forget suffering. Now, what does it mean to forget suffering? Joseph is saying that God has enabled him to forget the sorrows and the troubles of his past. He did not mean literally that he forgot that he had a father and brothers, and he, in the next chapter he sees them and he misses them, and he discovers how much he longed to see them, all that stuff. He meant rather that God had healed his wounds. Are there wounds there? Yeah, are there scars there? Sure. God healed what he suffered as a result of past abuses and disappointments. And God had made his life, made his life fruitful. There are people who have been so obsessed with disappointments that these disappointments warp their whole life. You might be greatly hindered from living a fruitful life right now because of past hurts, and it's understandable. Hurts have a way of crippling us, stopping us dead in our tracks. I'm that way. That, I'm, that's my propensity. I was at, yesterday, I was just flipping through the channels and watching X Games, and some guy, like, fell and, like, broke his face or something. I don't know. And I looked. I'm going, I would never get on a bike again in my life. But then he gets right back up and gets on the bike, and I'm like, are you dumb? Like, how many energy drinks do you, ha- energy drinks do you have to drink to do that? But that's just, my, that's just the way I think. Like, if I'm hurt, I don't want to do that ever again. I don't want to get hurt like that ever again. And some of us never love again. Some of us never like risk for God again. Some of us never trust again. And we're just like paralyzed in this fear because of hurt. But Joseph said, My first son is Manasseh, for God has allowed me to forget the suffering. Have you allowed God to heal your wounds? Have you poured over your wounds the balm of the sovereignty and the goodness of God? Have you rubbed those into your wounds? Have you taken your wounds and going, God is sovereign and God is good. I'm going to rub that deep into those wounds. Or to put it the way that Paul did in Philippians, forgetting what is behind and pressing toward what is ahead. Paul, if you didn't know this, was was responsible for the first martyr's death. Christian martyr. Paul, the apostle. He approved it. I think there's some of that in there. When Stephen was killed for his faith in Jesus, and Paul had something to do with it, I think a little bit of forgetting what is behind and pressing. Like Paul could said, I don't deserve to be a minister. I don't deserve to be a pastor. I killed a Christian. I don't deserve it. There's no way in the world. I don't deserve the grace of God. I'm not, I'm, if I do, I'm just going gonna, gonna to hold on to the little grace that I have and just like, hide for the rest of my life. He could have said that. It's like, I forget that do i remember stephen do i remember yeah of course but i don't i don't bring that to bear on future service for god i imagine some of that forgetting the past is his sufferings that he that he went through as for the cause of christ the beatings the shipwrecks all that stuff i forget them. i move forward this kind of forgetting is not forgetting the pain the pain is there it's not forgetting the people the people are still there But that a remembrance of those past hardships should now not deter us from present aspirations for God's service. That we can move forward. I think a lot of us need that. I think a lot of us need that even in the midst of suffering, because some of you guys are going, I'm young and I've already suffered. Apply this deep to your heart. We need this, we need the presence of God the presence of his sovereignty, the presence of his goodness. This last week I was reading in this 7 by 7 magazine, a local magazine, a very honest personal narrative from one of the editors there is leaving after eight years. She writes, she has she got the job of her dreams. She moved to San Francisco eight years ago. The job of her dreams, the house of her dreams, parties, friends. Then failed marriage. Now leaving completely humbled by the city. She says in the middle of the article San Francisco's sheen has worn off or more precisely mine has It's shimmering beauty and limitless potential didn't protect me from anything least of all myself quite the opposite It ripped the lid off my life and said look you can have anything you want but it failed to speak the second part You can have anything you want but it won't be free San Francisco has, San Francisco may be the most magical city on earth, but it's still on earth after all. I love that sentence. I think in the midst of suffering, we all want something transcendent, something other, something like beyond ourselves. And we try to find it in a city, we try to find it in a job, we try to find it in all these things. The only place it's found, the only shalom or peace that can come is that presence, the presence of God. The presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of a sovereign God and a good God. As we worship, as we go into probably the most important time on our Sunday morning, let's respond to God. The Psalms are very honest. If you feel like you need to be honest with God today, the Psalms are laden with honesty. God, where are you? Have you left me? But they always follow up with this theology that God is near. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I hide from your presence? If I go to the depths of the sea, you are there. If I climb the highest mountain, you are there. Let's be honest with God. Let's apply the balm, the healing balm of the sovereignty and the goodness of God to our wounds. Let's repent. If in here this morning you're like, I've been so bitter towards people towards God. I've just been bitter, and I can't move forward. I know that God has things in my life that he wants to do, but I just can't move forward. I need to repent. I need God to heal me. Let's allow God to minister to us as a church, and let me ask you to pray, God, and this is why I want to pray for a church, to teach us how to suffer well. Teach how to go through pain well. Teach how to go through pain and go, hey, you know what? The Lord is good. Let's pray. God, thank you for your presence. I pray for it now to be just tangible in this room and I ask God that as that happens people would turn in faith to Jesus Christ for the first time and trust in you for salvation that we would return to you if we've been wayward and lost that we return to Christ or that we go to you for healing maybe we need to go to you for healing again there's a wound that's been there that we keep reopening God I pray for healing today in the midst of suffering, or before suffering, if someone in here, Lord, that has not ever really suffered, I pray today, they, our prayer would be, teach us how to suffer well. And we don't, we just say, we say that the, the lie from the enemy is that because we know about suffering now, we're gonna suffer. We just, we just say that's a lie. There may be people here that live just a very healthy, blessed life. We say thank you for that, God. For those who have suffered or will suffer, I pray that you be present, near. Be near us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.